0: What would you say is the most misquoted Bible verse? Anyone have a guess? Go ahead. Oh, good one. Let's start with this. Judge not that you be not judged. I put that first. I figured that's the one I hear most, misquoted. And it's misquoted usually by unbelievers who think it's wrong for you as a Christian to say anything about sin in the culture or in their life or whatever. And they take this verse and apply it to mean, Ah, you better stop judging me. Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. No consideration of the context. No understanding of its original intent. But Jesus is not saying we are to never judge here. He's saying we are to never judge hypocritically. You had the Pharisees who lived in such a way that it was what's wrong for thee is not wrong for me. And so they had these double standards and they hid it with their religion. And Jesus says we are not to judge that way. We are to use a righteous judgment. So, in fact, in the very same chapter, he says watch out for those dogs. He's talking about a certain kind of person. Well, how are you supposed to know if you can't judge anybody? In that same chapter, he says you will recognize them by their fruit. But how are we supposed to do that if we can't judge anybody? Well, we can judge people. We are to judge, but we are to deal with our own sin first and we are to deal with a righteous judgment, not a hypocritical judgment. So that's the first one that came to mind. Here's a very popular one I hear all the time. This is probably second place. Jeremiah 29.11 For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now this is a coffee cup calendar verse if I've ever seen one. I've seen this posted in so many places and it's applied to the individual to mean that God has planned good things for you. That God has planned good things for you as an individual. And I don't have a problem with that, but that is not what this verse is teaching. Now, if you know the context of Jeremiah 29, Israel has forsaken God and they are in captivity again in Babylon this time. And it's so bad that God destroyed their city and their temple and now they are in a foreign land and the attitude among the Jews is He is finished with us. It's over. And so Jeremiah comes In the midst of this very dark time, with good news, God is not finished with you, Israel. It is not over. In fact, what he says through the prophet is he's going to let them return to their land and rebuild. And if you were to look at this in context, you would see the verse before it. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, Israel, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. So this is a text about the Jews returning to their land Because of God's covenant promise and not about you having a life of blessing and purpose. Are there scriptures that talk about that? Yeah, I'm sure you could find plenty of those. This is not one of them. I think third on the list, which Shane mentioned, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. You see this a lot in professional sports. You see athletes have it on their cleats or on their uniform somewhere. I know a pitcher in the major leagues has it on his glove, very visible. Tim Tebow used to wear it on his eye black. He would put scripture verses on there. And the idea is you can do anything that you set your mind to because Christ is going to strengthen you in that pursuit but rather than this being a text for the individual to mean that god's going to strengthen you when you are pitching to strike out batters or to win game game winning touchdowns the context in this chapter is about contentment and paul saying that his contentment remains in every circumstance whether he's prospering or whether he's suffering because Christ strengthens him. So it's about sanctification. It's not about athletic performance. It's not about human achievement. Yes, Jesus will be with you when you're going to go skydiving, but you don't want to quote Philippians 4.13 as if that verse has anything to do with that. So context is really important because as Paul tells Timothy we are to rightly divide the word of truth. Now, if there's one verse in particular that's my favorite, as if you could have a favorite misquoted verse. It's one that's not addressed very often. It's one that I hear regularly misquoted, even by people who should know better. And that is 1 Corinthians 2.9 which says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. Now, how is this verse misused? It is misapplied it is misquoted as being some kind of promise of heaven that we are to use to encourage each other. <clears throat> so, you're one Christian talking to another Christian, maybe that brother or sister is going through a hard time, and maybe they just need some good news, and you start talking about heaven and you say, Hey, you know what God has promised you? No eye has seen. No ear has heard. It hasn't even entered into the heart. No one can even conceive of what God has prepared for those who love Him. Man, it's going to be awesome. Isn't it going to be great? And it's a beautiful sounding promise. But that's not what it means. Not at all. Rather than Paul directing the reader to focus on our future hope, Paul quotes this verse, which is an Old Testament verse, to talk about our present reality. So this is not about someday in paradise, this is about our life now. And what I would like to do with our time remaining is to prove that. Now, I've done these kinds of let's study the Bible together before, and as you know, I like to talk about context before we get into the verse. We're going to talk about a lot of context in this sermon. But first, the big picture. Where is this text located? It's located in the New Testament. Why does that matter? It's written to the church. It's not written to Israel. The promises are more profound to the church in the covenant we've been given this is a letter that is written to the people who belong to Jesus Christ what genre of literature is it this is didactic or plain teaching this is not pro or this is not prophecy this is not apocalyptic literature this is not proverb you must interpret different parts of the bible differently Just like you read the back of a spaghetti sauce can differently than you read the daily news, you have a context in which you're thinking about what you're reading. So the genre is is important. This is a letter from a person to a people. It is not poetic or any of the other things I mentioned. Who is the author? We know very plainly from the beginning the author is Paul. Who is the audience? We know very plainly from the beginning that the audience is the church at Corinth. What is its purpose? Most of your Bibles in the beginning of the letter will give a brief paragraph about why the letter is being written. A sentence summary would say that it's a corrective letter to the Corinthian church in which Paul answers many of their questions. Now, when I prepared this message this week, I did not look at commentaries. I did not look at study Bibles. I want to walk through this passage with you just as one Bible person who studies the Bible with another, and so you can realize this is simple. It's about observation. It's about applying the same consistent principles throughout, and it's about context. So, what has come right before this? The immediate context is that Paul explains that the believer has been made to see spiritual truth that the unbeliever cannot understand. In fact, he considers it foolishness. We are going to look at that context, and I'm going to go back all the way to chapter 1, verse 18, because I think that's where the argument starts. So, we are going to figure out what 1 Corinthians 2.9 means, but we're going to start all the way back in chapter 1, verse 18, so that we can get a big, sweeping view of what's going on. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now I want to illustrate what Paul is saying here, and I'll do it with something I just watched the other day on YouTube. Bill Maher, who's a Jewish comedian cultural commentator leaning on the left side interviews Jordan Peterson who's a Canadian psychologist and author and commentator and is leaning on the right. And so I thought this should be an interesting discussion. And in their conversation the subject of the Bible came about. Now it came about because Jordan Peterson who is not a Christian He's a clinical psychologist, but he has an interest in the Bible. For whatever reason, he has begun teaching online courses about certain books of the Bible. Don't ask me why. Bill Maher, who is the comedian, he came out with a movie some years ago called Religulous, where he basically mocks certain aspects of American faith, mostly Christianity. So as they're talking about the Bible, and Bill Maher took a course in college on the Bible, he went to Cornell University, they were teaching a course on the Bible, and he thought, well, this might be interesting. And he says to Jordan Peterson, yeah, man, but you've got to realize the stories of the Bible are so blanking stupid, and he didn't say blanking. And Jordan Peterson, on the other hand, he has some kind of respect for the Bible. He teaches the Bible in these courses. Now, he teaches the Bible, but because he's not a Christian, it is through a man-centered, evolutionary worldview with a psychological lens, and he makes a mess of what he's teaching. So you have a man who has an interest in the Bible and has taken on the task of teaching the Bible, but since he is not a Christian, he's not able to discern the truth of it. And so in this interview, he begins to explain to Bill Maher the book of Jonah. And he says, Jonah represents all people. And the call of God to go to Nineveh represents the conscience, the voice of our conscience. And running from the call is what we do when we fail to stand up for what is right. So we know something's right. We don't stand and speak about it. We don't defend what we think, what our convictions are. And that's running from this call of God that Jonah has. And being swallowed by the fish and being three days in the fish is a picture of that hell we bring upon ourselves for not standing up for what is right. Right? So you have two unbelievers here in this interview. One of them is antagonistic toward the Bible. The other claims to esteem the Bible, but note both of them think it's foolishness. Both of them think it's foolishness. Jordan Peterson would not twist the Bible into this misshapen psycho-babble kind of picture if he esteemed truly esteemed the Bible and feared God and believed it was his inspired word but because the natural man thinks the Bible is foolishness he has to pour new meaning into all of these stories so he takes all of these biblical stories and he changes them now I really like Jordan Peterson I think he's articulate and so intelligent and gifted and he speaks profoundly on many cultural issues and I think he's He's on the right side of those. But when it comes to the Bible, he is not born of God, and therefore he makes a mess of what the text says because deep down in his natural self, it's foolishness to him. He cannot see the beauty of the story of Jonah, that God desires to forgive an unworthy people And so he calls an angry, merciless prophet to be his spokesman. And we discover that Jonah is just as evil as the Ninevites because he does not want to see those people forgiven. And so we discover God's love for the Ninevites and we discover God's love for Jonah. And it's a profound story if you know the author, God, but otherwise you're going to think it's just A bunch of fables and of course peterson's explanation removes god entirely from all of the stories you notice that it's not god calling us to obedience it's a conscience that is part of some kind of evolutionary progress okay that's my that's my illustration for that text continuing on down in 20 verse 26 paul says for consider your calling brothers so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So what Paul is saying to these Corinthians is, look around, you don't have a bunch of PhDs and intellects in your group because God, God's plan is not to go around the earth and gather all of the top of the, whoever reaches the top of their IQ class or whatever. He's not gathering the most gifted people in the world. In fact, it's the opposite. He's gathering foolish and weak people, and he does that gathering through a foolish and weak message to the world. I mean, think about it. Think about your Bible. A man being swallowed by a fish is foolish to the natural mind. Come on, that didn't happen. Are you Are you serious? A family being saved on a boat that a man took a hundred years to build and he drowned the world and he took two of every animal on board. It's foolish to the natural mind. Daniel in the lion's den, God parting the Red Sea. I mean, you know, the intellectuals look at that and say, you people are pathetic. You believe these things really happened? I feel sorry for you. That's the wisdom of the world. And Paul's going to make a direct point that God coming to us in the person of Jesus and being executed on our behalf so that we can be forgiven by this God is extreme foolishness. And what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 1 and part of 2 is God designed it this way. God's not sitting there thinking, oh, I hope they believe. I hope they believe God designed it to be foolishness to the natural man so that he would call to himself the weak and the foolish of this world who are weak and foolish enough to believe those things happened. And even that is from Him. All of us would naturally recoil at having to believe such things were not the Spirit of God at work in us and giving us the conviction that these things are true. I remember as a brand new Christian reading through the Bible for the first time, I was born again. I mean, I just devoured the Word. And I was just reading it, and I was just amazed that God was speaking to me through it. And I would read stories like Samson taking the jawbone of a donkey and killing a thousand men. And I'm just like, it's so insane, but I know it's true. Like, I believe it's true. I totally know it's true. It was like God just did this work in me where he was talking to me through this book even through some of these stories that sound crazy. So this is the argument that Paul is building. The natural man cannot discover God through his intellect. The natural man is going to look at the things of God and think they are foolish. That is man's broken nature, and what God does is he doesn't put forth this proclamation to gather all of the intellectuals together, all of the PhDs, all of the summa cum laude of all of the universities. He preaches a message the world will think is silly. So, this is the context. Continuing. Chapter 2, verse 1. Same argument. And he says, "...and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God... With lofty speech or wisdom. In other words, Paul didn't come to the church and say, I'm going to give you ten reasons that you can believe in the resurrection. Historical facts. Here's archaeology. Here's this, here's this, here's that. He didn't come to them arguing details about how Jonah really could have survived for three days in the belly of a fish. How, God, how it's plausible that God did part the Red Sea because there's this eastern wind that comes in through Israel every once in a while. Paul does not come to them that way. Look at what he says in verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that, this is our purpose statement, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Why did Paul say, I'm going to go to this church, I'm going to preach Christ and nothing else, Because the preaching of that foolish message is what God uses to convert the sinner and not intellectual arguments. God is gathering those with a childlike faith together who see and glory in the message of Christ crucified and those in the world with their kind of wisdom will never, never see it. It's nonsense to them. But to those who are being saved, it's power. It's glory. Okay, so this is the broad context. Now we're honing in on the immediate context where our verse is found. Verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Now Paul almost changes direction a little bit. He doesn't want them to get the wrong idea. He's not saying, God's just gathering stupid people. You're all stupid, and that's why God gathered you together. So he says, wait, hold on. There is a wisdom. But it's not the kind of wisdom that you're used to. It's a wisdom that comes from God. Verse 7, "...but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory." I underline that. We'll come back to it. "...none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory." But, as it is written, here's our verse, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. Now, I'll just make an obvious point. None of this is talking about heaven so far. He hasn't mentioned heaven once talking about wisdom that comes from God and the wisdom of the world and how the world thinks it's foolishness and the people of God thinks it's wisdom and power and this vo- this verse that is misquoted a lot is taken from the Old Testament so Paul's quoting his Bible now now whenever Paul's going to quote his Bible he's going to make a theological point point. He's going to use Scripture to back up his argument. He's been building in arguments. And he wants you to know there's a Scripture verse for this. And he quotes Isaiah 64.4, which in Isaiah 64.4 reveals that God always provides for His people. And so Isaiah 64 is a passage about God providing for His beloved. There was a wisdom that was given to Israel that was not given to the nations. So you had Israel as this set-apart nation. You had all of these Gentile nations around them. They did not have the revelation of God. They did not have the wisdom of the Scriptures. They did not have the sacrificial system and the priesthood and all the rest. So what God does is He provides a secret wisdom for His people. Secret meaning it's not broadcast to all the world. And Paul cites that verse and says, just like God did with Old Testament Israel, where God revealed the mysteries of His plan and purpose to them, this time He gives us His Spirit so that we as the people of God in the New Covenant can know and understand the secret things of God. The wisdom of God. This takes us back to verse 7, which is why why I underlined it. A secret and hidden wisdom from God. It's hidden from man, but it's given to God's people And when they receive it, it's not foolishness. It's wisdom and it's power. So let's look at this on a separate slide so we have a little more room for what's coming next. This is the aha moment of the sermon. So pay attention. This is where you say, oh, now I see how there's no way it could be talking about heaven. Verse verse 9, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now notice this. Paul is saying no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has devised, etc. Not a future promise of heaven, but a present reality on earth and one that has already happened. It's already done. It's a completed action. That's why the English records it in the past tense. This is an aorist's The word is apokalupto, this word revealed. That means an unveiling, a revealing. This is written in the aorist tense. And if you don't know what the aorist tense is, the aorist refers to a singular completed action. And the most common tense in the Greek for referring to action that's happened in the past. Let me give you a Greek dictionary definition. Unlike the other past tenses, imperfect and perfect, the aorist simply states the fact that an action has happened. It gives no information on how long it took or whether the results are still in effect. Aorist is an ideal tense to describe an action that happens at a particular point in time. The aorist is often used in the same kinds of contexts in which we would find a simple past tense verb in English. To use an example, the verb played in the sentence, Karen played tennis yesterday. So this is important because what Paul is saying here is not a reference to a future heavenly hope. He's talking about something that God has already done and what he has done is reveal this secret wisdom that the world does not know. Look at verse 10. These things God has revealed. What things? It's the secret wisdom from verse 7. But it's also what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, etc. That's this what he's talking about, the same things. What does it say after this? Verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Verse 12: Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. What are the things freely given us? by God the same things that Paul says no eye has seen no ear has heard no heart has imagined etc this is all part of an argument that Paul is making that God has done something so profound the world cannot see it but we can see it because we've received it it's been imparted to us we do not look at the things of God and think they are foolishness we see wisdom, and we see power. Now, as I'm preparing this this week, I'm thinking some people are going to say, okay, I see, I, see, I see the argument you're making. Okay, that's pretty plain. But is it really that important? I mean... <laughs> What if a Christian wants to quote the verse to encourage another Christian? I mean, someone's really having a day and the Christian wants to pep them up and make them feel good and set their eyes on their heavenly hope and they say, hey man, don't be so down. You know what God has said? No eye has seen, no ear has heard, etc. I mean, what's wrong with that? Is, Is there something wrong with that? I think there is something wrong with that because we want to say what God has said the way that God has said those things, and we don't want to take something in a different place where God has said something different and make it say something else. We don't want to take God's Word where there are verses that have nothing to do with a subject and take them and apply them to a subject, a different subject. It's a very slippery slope when we start using Scripture as something that we can mold and shape and apply whenever we feel like it. Is it true that no eye has seen or ear heard or heart of man imagine what God has prepared for them in heaven? Yeah! Absolutely. We have no idea. You're just going to blow your mind. Is that what he says here? Not at all. I think this is important. Let me give you another example. Some years ago, I saw in a Christian bookstore a piece of jewelry. It was like a medallion, and it had a Bible verse on it. And it quotes Genesis 31:49. and Genesis 31:49 in the ESV says, "The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight." And it's really cute and it's split down the middle. And so, you know, a spouse can have one half of it and then the other spouse can have the other half wearing it on their chain. Or best friends can wear the one half and the other half that live on the other sides of the country. Or, you know, it's just, it's, it's meant to just communicate that sentiment that man, may the Lord watch over us while we are apart. But if you go and read Genesis 31 and you read the context of the statement, it is anything but sentimental. Let me just give you the context really quick. Jacob leaves his father-in-law Laban and takes all of his family with him and he takes his sheep with him and he takes his, Laban's daughters with him and he basically is going to run away from Laban. He sneaks off. And Laban and his men go after them and they finally catch up to them and Laban is furious. And in verse 43 it says, Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are My daughters, the children are My children, the flocks are My flocks, and all that you see is Mine. But what can I do this day for these My daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Now, if you're familiar with this, both of these men are shysters and they're manipulators. And Laban tricked Jacob and Jacob worked for him for 14 years when originally it was supposed to be seven years. But Jacob's not an innocent guy either because he stole his brother's birthright through trickery and he deceived his father and all the rest. And so here's the two characters you have here. And it's hard to know who you're rooting for as you read this this passage. Then you get to verse 48, it says, Then Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid and Mitzpah. For he said... The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Isn't that precious? (laughs) This is not sentimental. This is a threat Laban is saying to Jacob, I can't watch you at all times, but listen to me, buddy. God sees what you do. And if I don't find out what you do, God's going to get you. And someone said, let's just lift that verse out of there and make some jewelry with it. (laughs) What's the big deal? God wants us to rightly handle His Word. We are not to pull verses out of their context and pour new meaning into them. We are not to take otherwise clear statements and make them say something the author never intended them to say. It might seem harmless... Putting a verse like that where there's no context might seem harmless to someone who doesn't know anything about the Bible. Even to many Christians, they might see that and they think, oh, that's sweet, and not even know. But it is a slippery slope when you start using the Word of God in that way. You know who's the one in the Bible who twists the Scripture to mean something different? The devil does that. Read Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness and what does the devil do? He quotes scripture, quotes scripture, quotes scripture and he takes it out of its context and he pours different meaning into it and every time he uses the scripture, it's wrong. And if you get into the habit of doing that, for sentimental value or for otherwise, you are treading in dangerous territory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, please help us, Lord, as we seek to be students of Your Word, as we seek to be honoring how we handle Your Word. May we meditate upon it day and night. May we make observations. May we Memorize it. May we love it. May we read it in context. May we speak it to others as words of encouragement. And Lord, may we do it rightly. I pray that this will have been an encouraging time for our people and a good reminder. Please bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.